Policy Church family, Pastor Josh here on video this morning. I right now am, uh, as you're watching this anyway, am in Hillsdale, Michigan with our students and am doing the teaching for their fall retreat for the Salt Company. So uh, thankfully, I'm able to still teach you and do, do so on video. And I thank you for the opportunity to let me do that. And it works out really well. We haven't done this a lot, but every now and then uh, when we do, it seems to work well. And I'm always reminded every time we do it, I think I've probably even said this, but it reminds me of uh, the Apostle Paul and uh, Peter and others in Scripture when uh, they would write letters to the churches that they had planted or the churches or people they cared for. And uh, that letter would have been received by those churches, you know, the church in Rome, the church in Ephesus, different places. And the leaders of the church would have gotten up and read uh, the letter from Paul to the church, and that would have been their sermon for the day. And uh, so he preached to him, even though he wasn't there. And that's that's really what's happening here. And I wonder if if Paul had a video camera and if Paul had a microphone, if this isn't how Paul would have talked to uh, so many different churches, is just to record and send him a video. But thankfully, we have that technology and we can do that. And that can be in two places at once this way. And I'm really grateful for that. So thank you. Um, <clears throat> the other thing, though, you're wondering where I'm at. I'm in my basement. And this, I think, is about the sixth time I've tried uh, recording the message. I've gotten about halfway through it a couple times and had to start over. I left the church. I just kept getting interrupted. And so I'm hoping I'm all alone here in my basement. And it's not the most exciting thing to look at. But there you go. So it's probably the first time in history anybody's ever preached a sermon from this spot on the earth. And I know it's the first time, at least in, in my, my basement. So I'm excited to, to be with you and have the opportunity to do this. And if you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been studying God's story. And we've been studying it through all of Scripture and really all of history. His overarching story of His grace and who He is and His plan for all of history. And it begins in Genesis 1. It begins, we saw a few weeks ago, that it begins, in the beginning, God. God, of course, is eternal. He's been existing Forever, I don't know how to explain that or understand that because my mind is finite, but he's infinite and eternal. And it says, in the beginning, God, and in the beginning, God created. He created everything we see. He created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And in Psalms, we find out he simply spoke and it came into being. And after everything he created, God looked at it and declared it was good. And of course, the pinnacle of his creation were Adam and Eve. Humanity is the only thing God created that bears his image, that is like him in some way. And you and I then, along with Adam and Eve, we're the pinnacle of God's creation. And that's an incredible thought of our value and dignity and worth before Almighty God. And in the beginning, when they were created, there was perfect harmony between Adam and Eve. They never fought. They never saw, uh, did not see eye to eye. They never had a disagreement with each other. And they, and they never had an issue with creation. Everything just worked the way it was supposed to. And maybe most importantly, they had perfect harmony with their creator. Perfect relationship with God. And that's an incredible thought. Uh, to have perfect relationship with their God. Of course, when you move into the second part of the story, after creation, you get to what we call the fall. And it's called the fall because Adam and Eve fall, and all of creation with them then falls into and under the effects 
of sin. See, when God created Adam, he gave him one rule. He placed him, he placed Eve in the garden, in the Garden of Eden, and he gave them one rule. He said, you can, I want you to be fruitful, multiply, I want you to fill and, and enjoy and maintain and care for this entire place. The only thing you can't do is eat from one tree in the midst of the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you eat of this tree, you'll surely die. Well, that command, sometimes we think of God's commands as being really restrictive. And he never lets me do anything I want to do. But really, his command isn't restrictive at all. He gives Adam total freedom. He just says, just this one tree. Because the garden wasn't, I've said it before, it's not like the garden in your backyard. It's like, when you look at the amount of land it would have occupied, according to the text, it's like, like, like Yellowstone, like Yosemite, like a big national park. He and Eve, Adam and Eve, had incredible freedom in the garden, but sadly, they disobeyed God's one command. And they went to the tree, and they took of it, and they ate. And they disobeyed God. And because of their disobedience, there was a great consequence, and the ultimate one being death, and, and just the fact that all of creation, and them including uh, them included fell from their perfection and they fell into sin and they fell under the effects of sin. That's why it's called the fall. And, and they're left then under these consequences, under these effects in a great state of need, which we saw last Sunday. Well, today we move into the third part of the story, the rescue and what's curious is that right after the fall, right after, immediately after Adam and Eve messed everything up for the rest of time, God steps in and he offers a fix. He promises that he's going to care for what they messed up. And he promises that he's going to restore things back to the way it was before they sinned. He's going to restore it all. And the first thing he needs to do is to rescue them. That's why it's called the rescue. He rescues them and all of creation from the effects of the fall. And it begins not with him immediately rescuing them, but it begins with a promise. It begins with a promise that he's going to rescue them, that he's going to restore everything. And that's where we're at this morning. So let me pray. And then uh, we'll dive into the story. And explore God's promise that he made to Adam and Eve to bring a rescue. Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. And thanks for your grace to us through him. Thank you that, uh, that he, in fact, is the one whom you would send, Father, to rescue us and to restore all these things. He's the one you promise immediately in Genesis 3.15. And he's the one in whom we place our hope and our trust. The truth of the matter is that uh, if the story of Adam and Eve wasn't the story of Adam, but it was the story of Josh, that, that I would have done the same thing. That any one of us would have fallen into sin and messed it up. But thankfully, Jesus lived the perfect life for us so that we don't have to remain under sin forever. But instead, you rescue us. You restore your creation. So I pray this morning as we look at your promise that you'd... Uh, Excite our hearts with that truth, that you'd focus our hearts and our minds ahead to the day when you're going to restore everything. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray against the enemy whom uh, we saw over the last few weeks and we'll see it again this morning. He, he simply comes to reverse what you and the Father and the Son 
have initiated. And he comes and he lies and he accuses. So I pray against the enemy this morning, his servants, their works and effects, that instead you might show us your truth. The truth of who Jesus is, the truth of who you are, and ultimately then the truth of who we are in light of that. So teach us this morning how we fit into this story and show us your promise and help us trust in it. Father, thanks for Jesus. I pray all this through him. Amen. Well, as I said, today we begin to see how God chooses to deal with the sin that was ushered in at the fall through Adam and Eve's disobedience. He's going to fix what they messed up. He's going to fix what we messed up. And we're going to see that God uh, made a promise to fix and reverse the fall. And you're going to see at the end of this message that really all of the Bible then, especially the Old Testament, all of it simply traces this promise that we see God make throughout history. And it traces the promise of God to restore it. And, and through some really unlikely people, we're going to see. Well, over the last week, three weeks, we've seen that due to the fall, Adam and Eve were removed from the garden. Uh, they faced all kinds of consequences, which, which got them ushered out of the garden. But the biggest consequence of all which they faced, ultimately, I think, oh, I know, it's death. And, and not just physical death, but ultimately spiritual death and separation from a good and loving God. And death, what we're going to see is the requirement that's It's the payment that's required for sin. It's what we earn for our sin. In fact, what what Paul says later in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, is he says, the wages of sin is death. That that the wage for sin is death. It's what I earn for my sin. And what wage you earn at work. Uh, You know, if it's a certain amount, an hour or salary or what it is, but... What I earn, what I deserve for my sin, the compensation due me for my sin is death. And it all goes back to the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Now the question that comes up is, is how is this payment for sin going to be made? How is it going to be made? Well, I'm going to try to use an analogy here, and I don't know how great it is, but I think it's at least helpful have you ever made a purchase that required you to sign a lot of documents in order to make it? Uh, maybe you've purchased uh, a house or a car. I, I, this is the second house that I've had the, the blessing to be able to purchase. And um, when you go through that process, if any of you have done that, you sit down with your realtor, you sit down with the bank and all these people, and you just start signing your name like a hundred times through about five reams of paper. And what you're doing is when you, when you sign all these documents, it's crazy, but the gist of what those documents say is that uh, you're purchasing this property for X number of dollars, and really the bank is purchasing it, so you're borrowing the money from them, and you're going to pay the bank back X number of dollars over X number of years at X percent interest. And as long as you stay current, as long as you care for your responsibilities and pay what's due, uh, you can stay in the house and enjoy it and live in it and care for it, and it'll be great. But if you default, if you fail to pay, if, if, if you don't do what you promised to do, the house will be reclaimed, you'll be kicked out, and you don't get to live there anymore. Because the truth is, it's not your house to begin with until you totally pay it off, right? It it belongs to the bank. Well, 
I think there's some parallels there when we look at the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. See, in the, in the garden, God made a covenant with Adam and with Eve. And he said, uh, I made you. I gave you life. And in fact, I, I breathed my life into you. That's what, that's what the text says. Go look at it. He, he, God breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of the man. And so he says, now I'm putting you in my garden. I'm, I'm going to allow you to live here and care for it and enjoy my garden with my life in you. Enjoy it. Eat of any tree you want. Love it. Care for it. Have a blast. My only rule is that you don't eat from this tree in the middle. Because if you eat of that tree, you'll surely die. Instead, I want you to be fruitful. I want you to multiply. I want you to subdue the earth and fill it with your children and with your creativity and with your own creation. But don't eat from that tree. If you you fail to live up, Adam, to your end of the covenant, if you fail, if you disobey and eat from this tree and default on our agreement, You're not going to live. You're going to die. You won't enjoy this place anymore. You'll be kicked out. You won't have joy anymore. Your life will be defined by sorrow. In other words, as Paul puts it, the wages, the cost, the due compensation for eating from that tree and disobeying and breaking the covenant is is death. You'll pay for it now and for eternity. In sinning and eating from the tree, Adam and Eve, they, they essentially, in some ways, they, you might say they bought a house that they couldn't afford, that they could never afford. And they, it's so expensive that they owe now their very lives for it. And they subjected themselves to God's judgment and his wrath and all of creation with them. God gave them life. He said, here's who you are. You're made in my image. And here's how you should live in light of that. And, and when they failed to live up to the covenant, kind of like the bank would come back and say, hey, give us our house back. God comes to them and says, hey, give me my life back, which I loan to you because it's not your own. It's my life that's in you. You, you sinned against me and rebelled. And the consequence is that I demand your life. You owe me for your sin. And the truth is, he says the same to me and he says the same to you. That because of our sin, we deserve death. The wages of of my sin, of Josh's sin, is death. Physical death and spiritual death being separated from God eternally. Under his wrath. In hell. Paying off what I could never afford. Well, Adam and Eve then, they come under judgment for their sin. And the thing is that unlike when you default on the mortgage and you go to bankruptcy court or you go to a third party and they mediate things and work it out. So in terms of our sin with God, he's not only the lender and the owner, he's also the judge and the jury. And there's no way this will be mediated from our end. We can't do anything to satisfy his wrath, to satisfy his judgment. He demands a payment for my sin and for your sin and for Adam and Eve's sin. And that payment ultimately is death. So Adam and Eve and the rest of humanity ever since have suffered under the weight and consequence of sin. 
And this is because you have it there right in your notes. Sin had to be dealt with in order for its pen, for its penalty. It required payment. Its penalty requires payment from the sinner. And that payment is death. Paul says it. The wages of sin is death. It's stated elsewhere too, but that's just the most simple statement of it. God said it right away. If you eat from this tree, you'll surely die. And after Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, God goes looking for them and he condemns them and he tells them, you are taken from the dust and to the dust you'll return. In other words, you'll, you'll die for this. You'll give your life for this. But what's incredible and what we'll see today is that, that God also promised that there would be an incredible rescue to reclaim and to restore what was lost at the fall. And Romans talks about it this way. Paul talks about it here in Romans 8. He says, uh, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, after the fall, after we messed up, Christ died for us. That, that God sends Jesus Christ to die on the cross, to live a perfect life that I couldn't, to pay the penalty that I owe, the payment that I owe for my sin, Jesus paid it. And what I want you to see this morning is that God, in his grace and in his goodness, not because of anything that Adam and Eve had done, but in spite of it, right away, right away in Genesis chapter 3, he makes a promise that this is what he's going to do, that I'm going to fix this. You messed it up, but trust me, I'm going to restore things to the way I originally planned. See, he promised to make a permanent end to all sin. He promised that one day sin and shame would be conquered fully and completely. For he would send a savior to rescue them forever from their sin. So today we enter this third phase of the story, the rescue. And God's promising to rescue Adam and Eve and all of humanity from their sin against him. It's really an incredible and a beautiful story. God's story is. His grace is. So if you've got your Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 3. And I'm going to read through parts of it, but we're going to be camping out there for most of the morning. So again, Genesis chapter 3 is where we're at. And I'm going to go ahead and read some of these first few verses and just review where we've been. And you're going to see here in the text that second phase again, the fall. Here's what Genesis says in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
But, you might circle this in your text, but, because this is a big one. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? See, I want you to notice some things here in this text. And it begins right here in verse 9. When we talk about the promise that God makes is that number one, God initiated the rescue in Genesis 3 verse 9. He initiates it right away. He, he, he does it by pursuing Adam and Eve with this question. Where are you? Where are you? Adam and Eve sinned. And, and the moment after they sinned, they felt shame for their sin. They felt guilt. They felt fear before a perfect and holy God. They, they knew immediately that they had messed up. So what did they do? Did, did they run to God and say, God, we screwed up. Please forgive us. Please forgive us. That's not what they did. In fact, they ran and they hid from God in their guilt and in their fear and in their shame. They covered themselves with fig leaves and sensing their nakedness and inadequacy before a perfect and holy God. They remembered exactly what God had told them would be the penalty for eating of that tree. And my guess is that they knew and they feared that if they would see God, he would immediately kill them. And you know what? The truth of the matter is God would have had every right to do that. And he does today. That the moment I sin, in the midst of my sin, he would have every right and be perfectly just to take my life and to be done with me. He would have every right and he would still be good and still be perfect and still be just if he totally abandoned me. Yet that's not what he does. Notice what he does. He didn't, and the truth is, he, he didn't even have to seek them out. He seeks them out, right? That's what he does. But he doesn't even have to seek them out. God's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He knows what's going on. It's not like he's like, oh, really? You guys sinned? What happened? No, he does it in his grace. He goes after them tenderly like a good father would. Not blowing up in anger, but in a reasonable way. Dads, you get a glimpse here of how maybe you ought to deal with your own children when they disobey the way God deals with Adam and Eve, he, he addresses it for sure, but he goes about it in a really tender, in a really kind way, and he seeks them out. See, he knew what had happened, he knew where they were, and he doesn't just leave them to be isolated and alone in their guilt. He, he, he goes after him. Instead, he bridged the gap and went looking for Adam and Eve. He initiated a rescue by pursuing them. Pursuing them with this question, where, where are you? Where, where are you? Adam and Eve hadn't run to God after they sinned, they ran from him. And you and I, we don't naturally run to God either when we sin, we run from him. But just like he pursued Adam and Eve, do you know he pursues you and he pursues me in his grace? That he, he, he chases us. He loves you. And he wants you to turn to him in repentance. He wants me to turn to him in repentance and live as his child. Loved ones, he's going after you. He's calling to you. He's pursuing you. Will you respond to him when he says, where are you? Where are you? Will you respond or will you keep hiding? Turn to him. He's good. He loves you. 
And he wants what's best. He wants you to respond to his grace. Well, first notice that God pursues them. He initiates the rescue, pursuing them, asking, where are you? And second thing to notice is that God makes a promise right away in Genesis 3.15 that he would send a savior to defeat Satan. He would send a savior to defeat Satan. See, after he pursues them and he finds them, he asks them, then the next question is, what have you done? And of course, kind of like we would, or like maybe your kids would, he starts with the man, and what's he do? He doesn't, he doesn't own up to it. He goes, well, uh, that woman you gave me, she, she tempted me to eat. And really, you know what he's doing? He's blame-shifting. God, you... If, and he's not just blame-shifting to the woman. He, he's, he's blaming God because he says, the woman you gave me made me do it. She's the one who gave me the fruit. God, if you hadn't given her to me, I, I wouldn't have messed up. Do you ever do that? Do you ever look at God and you complain about yourself or about how things are, about how he's made you and the things he's given to you? Well, God, if you hadn't, hadn't made me like this, if you, hadn't, if you hadn't given me this temper, if you hadn't given me that man to be my dad or that woman to be my mom, if you hadn't let that happen, I wouldn't be like this. This is your fault. The woman you gave me, Adam says. He's blame-shifting. He's ultimately blaming God. That's a bad plan. God wants what's best for us, and he wants what's best for Adam and Eve. Well, he goes to, after Adam, he goes to Eve, and Eve says, she does the same thing. Well, the, the serpent, the serpent made me do it. It was, it was the serpent's fault. Well, then God starts to dish out the consequences in verse 14, and he begins with the serpent. And notice this, immediately after he gives the judgment to the serpent, God promises a fix. He doesn't wait around, think about it, and come back, you know, three days later, and it's immediate. Watch, read this with me, Genesis 3, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Here's the promise in verse 15. It may not appear to one to you, but let me explain. It's a promise. Here it is. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God says, I will put enmity. I will put war between you and the woman. He says to the serpent between your offspring, the ones after you, and her offspring, the ones after her. And, and there's going to be this constant war and battle and enmity between the two of you. But her offspring is going to win. They're going to win. And you may bruise their heel. You may cause some pain. But ultimately, they're going to crush your head. They're going to crush your head. And that's the promise God makes. Let me explain it to you. This is, this is theologically called the proto Evangelion. How's that for a word for you? The Proto-Evangelion. Here's what it means. Proto is Latin for first. And Evangelion is Latin for good news or gospel. In other words, this is the first good news. The Proto-Evangelion. The first good news. The first gospel that God gives after they messed everything up. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, if, that, that's great news. That Yeah, there's, there's, there's going to be strife, but... The enemy's going to lose. 
And God makes a promise right away here that he's going to fix what they messed up. And this isn't going to stand. He's going to reverse it. And he's going to make it better. It's the first promise of the fix. It's the first news, first good news after the fall. And, and you need to know that, that this promise is from God. And it's not based on anything that Adam and Eve would do or anything that you and I would do. It's based solely on his goodness and his grace. See, he said, I will put enmity between the two of you. And in other words, he's implying, I will be the one then to bring justice between the two of you through her offspring. God's promise is to crush the serpent, to defeat Satan, and he'll do it through the offspring, or your translation might even say the seed of the woman. Well, the third thing to notice in here is that in God's promise, her offspring or her seed refers to the Savior. Her offspring refers to the one that will crush the head of the serpent. Her seed is the one who will crush the head of the serpent, the one coming in her line. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head. Or your translation, that could be rightly translated. He will crush your head, but you'll only bruise his heel. And the Savior, this one that's promised, the seed, the Savior, number four, is our rescuer. He's the one who will defeat Satan by crushing his head. Paul expands on it in Romans at the end of his letter to the church in Rome in in Romans chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. And in verse 20, it says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, is how he ends his letter. That the offspring, ultimately we're going to find out that that promised seed is Jesus himself. He'll be the one to crush the enemy for us. And he may be bruised, and we may be bruised by the enemy, but ultimately Jesus himself will crush him. Isn't that great news? That's that's incredible that he would do that, not because of anything I've done or would do to earn it, but totally out of his goodness and grace. He's going to fix what I messed up and what you messed up. That's God's grace. And the fifth thing to notice then is that God initiates the first sacrifice in Genesis 3.21. And it points ahead to the ultimate sacrifice for sin, which is Jesus on the cross. Because remember, God said, if if you eat of this tree, you'll surely what? You'll surely die. There's a penalty. There's a consequence of death for sin. And, And one of the ones we see here is that Adam and Eve, they try to cover themselves as best they can. And what does God do? He provides a sacrifice in verse 21. It says in Genesis 3.21, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. He makes more suitable coverings for them. What they tried to cover themselves with was inadequate. In the same way, when we try to cover ourselves, we're inadequate. But if we wait for God to cover us, ultimately, in Jesus Christ, it's totally adequate. And this foreshadows, his covering them in Genesis 3.21, foreshadows the covering he'll provide through Jesus. But notice it came through death. If God's going to provide skins for them, then for the first time then in the garden here, Adam and Eve, after hearing the curse and hearing their punishment, the next thing they hear is death. And for the first time they hear the screeches and the pain of an animal being killed and its blood being shed for them because of what they had done in order to cover them. 
and to pay that penalty. And the rest of the Bible then traces this promise that God makes right at the beginning. It's incredible when you think about it that the majority of God's story is in the first three chapters of the Bible. Which, you know, it tells me if you don't understand and if you don't believe those first three chapters in Genesis, why are you wasting your time with the rest of it? And if you don't get those three, then you're not going to get any clue to what the rest of the story is about. That's why we've spent so much time the last three, four weeks here just in these first few chapters of Genesis. And the rest of the story then from Genesis 3.15, Genesis 3.16 really on through the end is all tracing how God's going to keep this promise. It's all tracing how God's going to restore everything back to Genesis 1 and 2 and recreate everything and make things new and deal with sin. And that's what the Bible's about. It's tracing that story. And ultimately, you and me, our lives are about and in the midst of that story until it's complete. Well, in, in your notes this week, to try to help you with that, because we don't have time to just preach through the entire Bible in this short series. But I do want you to understand now that as you read the text and as you study it for yourself, that really what you're reading is each part of the story is, is characters in God's story that's moving the story forward. And it's moving it, it's moving it forward in a way that they're carrying with them that promise of God to where one day that will be totally uh, kept and everything will be restored and and that's the story of scripture, and that's the story of history, is it's, it's moving to the point where God will restore all things. And so in the midst of your message notes this morning, you probably saw this timeline. And uh, this, initially we had put together when I preached through the book of Revelation, and it's the same timeline, so maybe you still have that, if you don't, don't worry about it. But I just added one thing to it on the top. If you notice right across the top here, it just says, uh, tracing God's promise. And, and what that is then is it walks through a basic timeline of Scripture, the history of Scripture, and chronologically shows how basically what's happening here is it's simply tracing God's promise that was initially made in Genesis 3. And it's reiterated over and over and over and over throughout the text. I mean, it, it starts in Genesis 3, and then you get to Genesis 6 and 7, and and eight, and you have, the, you have the flood. And so God promises again now to Noah, hey, we're going to keep this going. And it, you follow the, the promise, and it goes through Noah. And, and then the promise, you know, we get to the Tower of the Babel, and people disobeyed, so God scattered them. He, he confused their languages so that they would scatter and actually obey his command to fill the earth and multiply. And so they get scattered, and after a while, then you fast forward a ways, and you come to a man by the name of Abraham, who God promises To him, hey, uh, I'm choosing you, Abram, and it's going to be through you that I'm going to keep my promise to Noah and to Adam. And so through Abraham then, Abraham has Isaac, and the promise goes through Isaac. And then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And we find out as you read the text in Genesis that the promise goes through Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons, and ultimately the promise uh, will come through those 12 sons, but ultimately through Joseph. And you keep tracing the promise forward through the story. Well, then you come to a guy named Moses. And 
He leads God's people out where God's keeping his promise. He pulls them out of captivity. And then Joshua, who he keeps his promise. He brings them into the promised land. And, and all of it is marching the story forward to the day Jesus will return. And then you have the judges. And then you have the monarchy and King Saul and King David and King Solomon. And then the divided kingdom. And so many times as you read the story, you come to these crisis points and you go, how in the world is God going to keep his promise in the midst of what's happening here? These people are messed up. I mean, right away, Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4, right? Cain kills his brother Abel. And so then Adam and Eve have a new son, Seth, and it's through Seth the promise is kept. And when Joshua comes into the promised land... Do you realize who it is that the seed, this promised seed is going to come through? It's the two spies. They go into Jericho and they stay at the house of a prostitute named Rahab. And we find out in Matthew that it's through this prostitute that God kept his promise and through the seed. And God uses this whole host of really, really unlikely characters to move his story forward. I mean, here's just a few of them. You had Cain and Abel and Seth, and then you had Noah and his family, and Abraham. He was advanced in years. He, he married his half-sister, and then he, he denied that she was his wife and sold her to Pharaoh. And all these people were really messed up. And then, then the, the prostitute Rahab puts her faith in Israel's God, and Jesus comes through her. And then a shepherd boy, David, the line, the promise would be kept through him. And David, of course, he seemed like a good guy at first, but then we find out he commits adultery and murder, and yet God still keeps his promise. See, it it had nothing to do with any of these people. It had everything to do with God's goodness and his grace. And and if you carry the story forward through Scripture, and you keep reading, and you keep reading, you find out, man, these people are messed up, but God is really good. He still loves them. And so now when I write myself into the story, when I get through the end of the book of Acts and realize I'm living in Acts chapter 29 and it's being written as I live my life, that why is God keeping his promise through me and to me? I don't deserve it. I'm as messed up and more messed up than many of these people in Scripture. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the goodness and grace of our God who is rescuing us from the fall. He's rescuing us from our sin and the effects of sin. And in that rescue, he's made a promise. He says, I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to fix what you messed up. If your only response is just to simply trust me. Jesus said, whoever would believe in me will have eternal life. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. The second death has no power over them that If you trust Jesus, you are rescued from the effects of sin. Now, it's an already not yet thing, right? You've already been rescued, but you're you're still kind of messed up. And then one day you're not yet totally rescued. One day Jesus is going to come back. And and so we're still in the midst of tracing this promise where it'll be totally fulfilled when Jesus returns. And it's all made new. And we're with him forever. And everything's restored back to the way it was. And we spend forever with God. But this morning, no. No that he's made a promise. He's made a promise to Adam and to Eve and to Noah and to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to his 12 sons and to, to Joseph and to Moses and to Joshua and to, to, the, to Gideon. And, and you trace it through and to Ruth and to, to, you follow it all the way through to where it's, it's fulfilled in Jesus. And it's a promise to you. 
It's a promise to me that if you would turn to him in faith and trust his solution for your sin, that you'd be saved. If you've never done that, I, I plead with you, trust Jesus Christ and turn to him in faith. If you have done that, if you've repented and turned from your sin and you've turned to Jesus, live like it. Live like it. Live out the truth of that promise that's been made. Next Sunday, we're going to see that not only does God make a promise, but he keeps a promise. And we're going to explore in detail uh, how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise that God made and the promise that he keeps. It's all through and in and because of Jesus. Trust him. Trust him. He's your rescue. He's your hope. Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus and thanks for your grace to us through him. Um, Lord, it's different to, to, to preach and to do this through video and to the people who are uh, watching this a few days from now. But uh, you're outside of time. You, you hear my voice now and, and you're working in them even as this is being played. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would encourage them with the truth of your word, with the truth that, that you've provided a promise and that that promise is Jesus himself. Remind us that you've made a promise and remind us as we look forward now, even to next week, that you keep every promise you make. So I pray for those, Holy Spirit, who've never trusted Jesus with their life, who've never repented of their sin and turned to him in faith, that today might be the day that they do it. And uh, for those of us who have, Father, I pray that you would remind us of the promise you've made, that this world is not all there is, and that we need to live in light of your promise and in light of eternity and to keep repenting, to keep turning to you and trusting you and letting you make us new because one day we will be totally and completely new and live forever with you. Thanks for your grace to us in Jesus Christ, Father. I pray all this through him. Amen. Hey, have a great Sunday. Uh, students will be coming back. I think we get back around 4 o'clock, 4.30 this afternoon. So, um, yeah, love you guys. Can't wait to see you again next Sunday. Your love. See ya.